Uh, we look forward to celebrating together as church family at a, at a picnic this afternoon. And we want to celebrate uh, this family, the Carters, who uh, this summer will have been with us for 10 years, which is, is hard to believe um, that it went by that fast. So. They were looking a little more surprised at the first service. <laughs> um, I told this story at the first service, and I, I recall it quite clearly when, when I made an announcement about uh, the Carter family joining us, and I, I said that we had hired a new preacher, and his name was Kelly Clarkson. And uh, a lot of the youth were especially excited about that because, you know, who thought we'd get a rock star for a preacher? And then when Kelly showed up there, well, there was a little bit of disappointment, but uh, it turned out we did get a rock star for a preacher. Um, but if you know Kelly and, and Robin and, and Megan and family, uh, Kelly, Kelly's been much more than a, than a preacher. He's, he and, and, and the family have been involved in every aspect of, of what goes on in this church. And, and we just want to recognize that the 10 years. Um, we want to thank them for their service to this congregation, uh, and we want to praise God for, for the blessings uh, and the, uh, what a blessing to the kingdom of God it's been to have uh, this family with us. Um, we've got um, a couple of things to, to give you. Uh, first of all is this uh, book of memories. So um, this is a, a, a picture, a picture um, uh, composite of, of, uh, of different members of the church and, and, and you folks uh, being with us the last 10 years and there's some commentary in there from, from uh, members. So uh, we'd like to just uh, give you this um, book as a, as a, a memory of, uh, of the past 10 years and our, and, uh, our thanks uh, to you. I've also got a, an envelope here um, and uh, I'll just read it, what's on it. It says, thank you, Carters. For your 10 years of service and sacrifice to the kingdom of God in Calgary. Now, in the first service, this envelope was empty, but now it's got a thick wad in it. And uh, we uh, just also wanted to give you this as a, as a token of our thankfulness. And uh, we pray you can use that and, and maybe uh, use that towards going to visit uh, your, your family down south that, uh, that we took you away from. So... But here you go. <laughs> William was just reminding me to make sure Robin got it. <laughs> I just had a short scripture that I wanted to, to read. Um, I just um, was thinking of something that was appropriate to read um, with the Carters in mind. And uh, having just gone through the study of Philippians, uh, I want to read right from the very beginning, chapter 1, um, where Paul says, in writing to the Philippians. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until completion, until that day of Christ Jesus. What Paul's really saying is to the Philippians is, you know, you, you by helping me, have actually furthered the cause of Christ. 
And that's what brought Paul so much joy. And Paul talks about partnership, and that's, that's what the Carters have been uh, coming to our congregation. They've been partners with us in, in working and growing uh, the kingdom of God here. And I think the Carters would have fit very well in the Philippian church. <laughs> and they've been uh, also uh, models of, of servant uh, hearts uh, for us uh, in the way that they serve uh, in every aspect of our church. So, so we thank you. Um, I uh, believe, Francis, you wanted to say a few words, and then we'll turn it over to Miles just to offer a prayer for the Carters. <clears throat> well, 10 years flies like uh, 10 days. I thank God that, uh, that made me to be one of the elders in this church. Otherwise, I would be saying 10 years Kelly has been here, oh, it, it will sound like maybe two years. Because uh, I won't know him intimately as I know him now. He's, uh, I call him a fine Canadian. That's what he is. Kelly. You too, brother. <laughs> <laughs> The humility Kelly has can be likened to Jesus Christ. Because it's not the type, in fact, we shouldn't be calling Kelly, we should be Dr. Kelly. Because others will say that's what they want them to call them, Doctor. But I've never seen in any of his uh, program, in any of his Simon, to say Dr. Kelly. What of a, a humility. And, and um, for me, I've seen Kelly humility more than any of you. At times in an elder meeting, I get uh, maybe frustrated or have argument with him, hot argument. And he won't say a word, he just smile and walk away. There was a time that Miles and myself, we were here till midnight because I have some argument with Kelly. But Kelly, all the time, Kelly took the humility in Philippians. And for Robin, I don't know how much, but for a pleasant Smile. In fact, it tells me a lot. And Megan, like mother, like Dora. So the smile, the same. So I'm so happy uh, for what Kelly uh, has done for us. I advise, I encourage all of you, don't look at Kelly at far, far off get closer to him the way I did to know him better. Thank you. I guess we're all, we're all familiar with uh, at least some of what Kelly does here. And he serves throughout the week. As was mentioned, Robin has faithfully been teaching uh, Sunday school classes since long before she came here. 
And uh, Megan has helped out with our with our youth, and the whole family has been so active and, and such a part of our family here. Uh, let's go to God in prayer and ask for his blessings on this family. Dear Father in heaven, Father, we we praise you for your blessings. And we thank you so much that among these blessings, we have the privilege of being a family, that you bring us together and you knit us together uh, each as different parts of a body and members of a family. Father, thank you so much that 10 years ago you brought the Carter family to be uh, part of our family here. And they've been such a blessing to us. We pray that we've been equal blessings to them as well. And Father, we ask that you continue to rain down blessings on their family. Father, they've been such sa- such faithful fellow servants, fellow workers, and fellow soldiers in your kingdom. Um, we pray that you will uh, honor their, their sacrifices for you, and um, you just continue to be with them, help them to continue to serve as they have in the past in your kingdom, and to be continual blessings as they have been in the past. This we pray in Christ's name, Amen. Now, the uh, it's been mentioned once before, the picnic after the service, um, uh, right after the service today, is actually in honor of the Carter family. And now the Carter family, they didn't actually know this because this was a surprise. And uh, Kelly does have other engagements that he's scheduled a little bit slightly later in the afternoon. So I encourage you to to take all that visiting that you love to do after service here, take it to the park and do your visiting there. And uh, just so we can spend as much time with the Carters uh, as possible and you can, uh, you know, express your appreciation uh, for them there. Um, also, you know, based on previous year's experience, it's also a good idea for us to get out there as soon as possible because even though it's sunny right now, you just never know. Okay. Thank you. I thought for just a moment there that Miles was maybe going to ask Robin to offer a few words. I was just waiting to see what would happen. That would have been wonderful to see her have to do that. It has been a blessed 10 years for sure, and it's, uh, it's a shock to me that it's, uh, that it's gone by so quickly and that it's been 10 years. Uh, I, I just can't imagine that, that a decade has gone by, but it is true. And so we came here in 2006, and I'm looking forward to 2026, and we'll see what happens as time passes by. But it's a great blessing. One of the things that, um, that every preacher should be able to say is that they don't feel like a hireling. And I don't. You're my church family. And the word family is so appropriate. It just fits. It's exactly how it should be. And so I'm just so grateful to be here and to have the opportunity to serve among you and serve with you. God has blessed me um, just beyond measure in terms of the opportunities that I've had to be able to serve him. And to be here with you is just incalculable in terms of how wonderful that is. And so thank you for that privilege and blessing. 
We start a new series today. If you looked out, uh, if you walked in the, in the foyer, you saw our place where our posters get placed in that case there, and uh, perhaps you would have seen that there's a new series that we're starting this morning, Five Smooth Stones. And the notion here, you remember, where, first of all, where does that come from, the, the five stones image? Where does that come from? Yeah, story of David and Goliath. And we're not going to talk, actually, about David and Goliath. But the idea is that David had something that he was doing for God. And in order for him to get accomplished what he needed to get accomplished for God, he needed to go choose five smooth stones. And those five smooth stones, it turns out, of course, he uses one of them. But he's prepared and he's ready and he's done something there in terms of choosing those stones, a way for God to bless what he's doing for the Lord. And so we want to choose some stones, or I've chosen some stones, I guess I should say, some choices that we need to make in terms of how we're going to live out our faith best in our world. God wants us to live for him in a significant way. He doesn't want us stumbling along, trying to get little done for him. He wants us to be more than conquerors. And so in order for us to successfully live for him, there's some choices even that we need to make. So as we start, let me throw this up on the screen and see what you can do with this. This sentence possesses exactly three errors. The question is, can you find them? And I'll give you a hint. Two are pretty easy. I don't know how you've done with that. Try this one. There are exactly three things that are wrong with this sentence. You can look at that one again. And then you look at this one. Now maybe by now you've got it. You figured out that there are three things indeed wrong with each one of those sentences. Or maybe you haven't quite got it. Why is it that we don't get it for those of us who don't? Well, I think there's a good reason. I think it's because we assume when we see the first two errors that the third one's going to be like the first two. And so we assume that there are two grammatical errors. The third one's got to be a grammatical error as well. And so I'll just keep looking until I find a grammatical error. You can look all day. There is not going to be a third grammatical error, but there is something wrong with both those sentences. And the, va- the fact is that the, what's wrong is that there's something wrong with each of those sentences. <laughs> they are wrong. There are not exactly two things grammatically wrong. Well, there are th- two exactly grammatical things. But the third thing is that the sentences are wrong. Because they say that there are exactly three things wrong with these sentences. But grammatically, that's not the case. The third thing is that they're each wrong. Do you see that? But that's hard to get. We don't see that easily. In fact, the only way that you can get it is by having a change of perspective. And thinking that maybe the third one has nothing to do with grammar. And so you've got to change your mind. You've got to change your thinking. There's something wrong with this sentence. Well, if you're looking for something grammatically wrong, 
You won't find it. And so if you think to yourself, oh, there's a grammatical problem with this sentence, there's not. And so the sentence itself is wrong. But now all of a sudden you get it. And so when you read this last one and you say there's something wrong with this sentence and you think, oh, I know what it is. It's wrong. (laughs) Then clearly a change has taken place. In just a few moments, you've been changed. In just a few moments, you've had your mind broadened a bit. You've been able to think in different ways. You've got a new perspective, a new set of eyes. And I would say this morning that all of us need some kind of new set of eyes so that now we can get it in a way that perhaps we didn't get it before. And I want to do something, therefore, with our lives as Christians this morning about getting something that I think we really need to get. I want you to look at this passage. So I tell you this. And insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to not indulge in every kind of impurity, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That there's supposed to be a difference between those of us who stand in Jesus Christ and those who live in the Gentile world. We're not supposed to be exactly like they are. But sometimes we are like they are. And so there are problems that sometimes are part of us in the same way that there are problems in them. And here are some of them. And Paul says that there are several problems with the Gentile position, but isn't it the case with us as well at times? Like, for example, sometimes our thinking is not what it should be. And this is their case. They think in ways that are not God's ways. They have understandings, the text says, that are not the understandings that they're supposed to have. There are things that they can't perceive even about who God is and understand him well. There's actually a hardening of the heart that sometimes takes place. And when that happens, they can't think or understand or change their behavior in any way because the heart has become hard. They're not at all what God wants them to be. And then sometimes they've given themselves over to sensuality. And you know as well as I do that sometimes this impacts Christians as well. In fact, isn't it the case that if I was to ask all of you in a private moment to write down on a piece of paper or to just reflect inside yourself for a moment, isn't it the case that there are ways in which your life doesn't represent Christ? Isn't it the case that there are things about you that you wish were drastically different, but they're not? And all I have to do is say something like addiction to pornography. Or all I have to do is say um, unhealthy amounts of lust. Or all I have to do is say cheating on something financially, your taxes. Or I could just say, do we ever tell those little what we call white lies? 
every one of us has something within our lives that we're burdened by when it comes to our behavior. And if not to our actual physical behavior, to our thoughts. We're not what God wants us to be. Paul says that's the way that the Gentiles think. Look at this. The Gentiles do this in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, etc. Clearly, trying to make a distinction between what they are and what we are. And yet we recognize that we're not always what God wants us to be and we struggle with things. Well, God does have a different idea for us. In fact, if we read this passage right after the one that we just read, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Something different is supposed to be the case with those of us who stand in Jesus. And I want you to notice in this text things like a new attitude in your minds. The fact that you are made new, that you put on a new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And I don't see anything in here where Paul acts as though this is not possible. In fact, look at verse 8 that comes after this in chapter 5. It's at the bottom there in italics. You were once darkness. In other words, you were like those Gentiles. You were thinking like they were. You had their attitude. You had their hearts. You were once darkness. But what does he say? Does he say, but now you have an opportunity or are going to be light in the Lord? Is that what he says? No. This is like what we looked at in Philippians chapter 2 and 3. Become what you are. Because this says now you are light in the Lord. There has been a drastic change that has taken place within us. And God did it. It's not because I did something. It's because God has worked something through the presence of his spirit in me to become different than I was. This says, you are light in the Lord. Is there anybody here who has come to Jesus and is not light in the Lord? Like it seems to me like we all are. We've all been transformed. Something has happened. We have become different in Christ. We have become light in the Lord, it says. It's not a question of whether or not this is the case. This is the case. And so we're going to be, I think, not what we should be, but what we are. Look at Galatians chapter 5. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. And then he says... Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And my question this morning is, what does crucified mean? Like, what happens to people who are crucified? What happens to, if anything is either 
for real crucified or figuratively crucified, what is the whole notion of, that crucifixion is about? Death. It's all about death. Things die when they're crucified. This says that our flesh has been crucified. That sounds to me as though it is dead. How is it dead? It's dead by the presence of the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, the Spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. But where the Spirit is, the flesh, Paul's trying to tell us, dies. The new comes. The new spiritual nature takes the place of the old sinful nature. Something new, radically different, becomes part of who we are. Now you might think, man, that's kind of cool. But what I would say is, it's not just cool, but it is throughout Scripture told as the truth about who we are in Him. And so we could read this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. That's exciting. Those things can be put out of our lives. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves, and look at the list here, of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Big things, small things, all things are being transformed. There is a new creature, a new person that has been created in Jesus and it doesn't look like this old person. Because we've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Do we know him? Do we know who he is and what it is that he's done for us? If that's the case, things are different. They're not the same. I'm not the same old person. I'm not dead. I'm alive in Christ. Given newness of life in him through the presence of the spirit. And I'm simply not controlled by the old things that used to control me. Paul says. And so if we struggle with this, clearly, it's not because God hasn't done something incredible and wonderful in us. It's simply because we don't recognize or accept who it is that we are. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. I'm not going to put this one on the screen. I want you to see it in the scriptures for yourselves. Romans chapter 6, it's on page 799 in the Pew Bibles. And I just want you to see the transformation that has taken place here in the life of those who give themselves to Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. Now I want you to notice, by the way, just quickly look at verse 3 in chapter 6 and just see what this is all about. Okay, what, There's something going on here. An event has taken place. And we think about what that event is. There's a lot of you in the room today who've undergone that event that's discussed in verses 3 and 4. We have put him on. We have been buried with him. And then it says in verse 5, if we have been united 
with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Like, you know what the word certainly means, right? It means for sure. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anybody who has died has been freed from sin. Remember crucifixion? The old man is dead. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, we'll come back to this in a moment. But in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who live, as those who've been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. And I think the point is something like this. Is there anybody here who would expect or have you ever seen or heard or experienced any notion of Jesus going back into the tomb? Like after he rose from the dead, did he say to himself, you know, this new life is good. I'm enjoying the new life I have in my father, but I think I'm going to go back into the tomb for a short period every now and then just to experience what that's like. So he goes back into the tomb and just experiences death again. Of course not. Why does he not do that? Because he's done with all of that. He has killed death. Death no longer has any hold on him, no grip on him whatsoever. He is resurrected to new life. He does not go back into the tomb. Why in the world would we? But we do. On a regular basis, it would seem not accepting all that we have received in Christ as new life. Paul describes this wonderful new life that we have in Jesus, and we keep trying to go back into the tomb. Look at this. Of them, the prophets, the Proverbs are true. And I I, I can't really say this because it's so gross. A dog returns to its vomit. And a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. I've seen this. And if you've ever been around a dog very much, this happens. Pretty gross. But this is what scripture says, those who have been freed and then go back into some kind of sin, this is what they do. It's like a dog returning to its vomit. And neither would Jesus return to the tomb and neither should we. And so why do we? Why does this happen? I've thought some about this, wondering why is it that God doesn't have more power over us? Why doesn't the Holy Spirit have more influence in us? I suppose there's lots of reasons. 
One is for sure that we become so distracted in our world. You know, I was last night I spent uh, in our life group at, that was at our house. We had a bunch of the young adults there. We our life group has a lot of young adults. So I, I don't know. There were close to ten probably young adults in our group last night, and we just started talking about the new life that we're supposed to have in Jesus. And then we just talked about all the distractions that our young people have to face. Like anybody who's my age, I, I thought it was bad when I was 18 or 19 years old. I thought, how can I cope with all this temptation? Can you imagine what it's like for somebody who's 18 or 19 years old now? With all that's there, especially in terms of social media and the things that they have to deal with? And then it's not just the social media, but it's the things that get communicated. It's a world that no longer holds on to God in any semblance the way that it did when I was 18 or 19 years old. It's just not the same. Everything has been ramped up. How in the world can we expect a young man growing up in our world today to not experience, at some level, addiction to pornography? How in the world are we going to do that? How can we expect our young ladies to make decisions about purity, about being what God wants them to be, when virtually every example around them that they see is in contrast to that? And if they do choose to be pure, the world is going to mock them for being so. I'm sad for those who are parents today Raising young children in our world who have to deal with all the things that they're going to have to deal with. How in the world are we going to help them negotiate their way through? There's just, there's too many wallows for the sows to return to. There's too much unhealthy food that is going to make the dog sick and cause them to return. And so we're going to have to make some good decisions, some good choices, choose some good stones that will enable us to negotiate our way through. Paul said we need to have a completely renewed mind in Romans 12, 1 and 2. In Colossians 3, 1, he says you'd have to set your mind and your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And it's the only way I know to put ourselves in a better position so that we can get through this. And then I want you to notice this from Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. We've already read these verses, but look at this. He says, in the same way, count yourselves, which is an attitude change, a total different perspective about who you are. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's how you have to start thinking of yourself. You are not dead because of sin. You are alive in Christ. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And then he says in verse 13 something that I think is like the crux of all of this. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness. Three times he uses the word offer. Offer, offer, offer. And I keep thinking about that word. Like how is it that I could sin in the midst of offering myself completely to God? Like if I wake up every day and then every moment of that day I'm thinking to myself, I just want to offer myself to Jesus. I just want to belong to Christ. I just want to offer myself to him. 
And when temptation comes, if we just say to ourselves, I want to offer myself to Christ. If that's our perspective, if that's our attitude, it seems to me like that may be the only hope that our kids and ourselves have for ending up on the right side of the balance sheet here in terms of giving ourselves completely to Jesus. Do we offer ourselves completely to him? This seems to me crucial. And so a couple of pieces of advice here as we close in terms of offering yourself to God, giving yourself completely to him. First, I would say this. We need to, just like Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, renew our minds every day. Just like Colossians 3, 1 says, set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And we need to do it intentionally every day. And so every moment when we get up, we need to think in terms of, I'm offering myself to God today. And this needs to become a habit. And so set your Bible someplace that you're going to stumble over it in the morning. Put it somewhere where you can't help but see it. And let it remind you that today you're offering yourself to God. Or I thought about this. What if you bought two or three padlocks? You know what a padlock is? Like with a key, opens the hasp. You know what a padlock is. What if we bought three or four padlocks? Opened them. And just left them around for us to see. Put one on your desk at work. Put one on the bathroom counter. Put one on your nightstand. Put one on the seat of your car. And all the time, have this reminder that we have lives that have been unlocked by God for a new freedom in Him by the Holy Spirit to work within us that makes us different than we ever were before. And maybe that doesn't work for you. Maybe it needs to be something else. But some kind of intentional reminder needs to make it so that every day you make a conscious choice to do what God wants you to do, to set your mind again on the things that pertain to God. And my fear is if we don't do this, we will become distracted. We will become distracted. The world is too filled with too many distractions, especially for our young people. And if there isn't an intentional setting of the mind every day, we can't do it. Then the second thing is, parents, I heard this great analogy just last night in our life group. We were talking just about this subject. And Miles Rippenhagen said this. He said, you know, when there's something new that we want our kids to try to eat. How do we get our kids to eat something new? Well, you don't, you don't fill the spoon and then stuff it in their throats. That's the dog back to its vomit thing. <laughs> what do you do? You take a spoonful and right in the kid's face, you say, watch this. And you take the spoonful and you put it in your own mouth. And you eat it. And then the kid hopefully doesn't think, yeah, but he's an idiot. (laughs) And instead they just eat it. Because they think mom and dad must know what they're talking about when it comes to this food. He kept it down. Maybe I can too. We need to model the kind of new heart, new change new creation that we are in jesus for those who are coming after us and if they can't see that we're new how are they ever going to hope to be new but they can see it in us god has enabled us to have this new possession through his spirit he provides us with the ability to become absolutely new 
in Him. We need to recognize this and we need to live that out. And so every day, and I'm talking about making an intentional decision here on your parts. Go home this afternoon and think to yourself, well, no, go to the picnic this afternoon. And then after that, and get there early. And then after that, think to yourself, what am I going to do to intentionally put myself in a position where every day I'm going to, to start my day, go through my day, being new and recognizing that this new possibility is mine. It's the only way I can think of that we're not going to become distracted. And so Paul says things like, I die daily. I pray continually. I have my heart set on things that are above. I have a transformed mind. And it's those things that allow Paul to reflect on the newness that we have in Christ and for him to live authentically before God. We can do the same, but it's going to take some intentional effort on our parts. His spirit will bless those efforts, I promise you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege and blessing we have of honoring and serving you. Thank you for the newness that is ours in Christ. Thank you for the the way in which you freed us and made it possible for us to live completely different than the world lives. Help us, Father, to seize the newness of this life in you where the old has gone and the new in you has come. We pray this through Jesus. Amen.